there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. You may know me from the blog Unpickled. If you don't, please go to Unpickled. You can read my story there. I've chronicled seven years of life after alcohol. That's where I tell my story, and then I invite you to share your stories here. And joining us today is Pete. And Pete has recently celebrated two years of sobriety, and I asked him to come on the show today and tell us a bit about what his experience has been like before and after uh, before deciding to quit drinking and in the time since then. So Pete, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hey, thanks Jean. Really appreciate it. And if I could say two things, um, congrats on your seven years and thank you so much for doing this because this Bubble Hour helped me tremendously when I was quitting drinking. Oh, thank you. That's that's really good to hear. Uh, I know it was a big help for me, too, before I was involved in the show. I was an avid listener, and there's just something about hearing other people's stories that makes us feel not alone, and I don't know, it really, it makes it easier, doesn't it? Oh, it it, it sure as heck does. uh, Every time I go for a walk, I think I have the bubble hour on, and... (laughs) Um, I think you're just doing a great job with it. Uh, Just love it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, I'm really glad that you joined us today because I – well, you wrote to me after I did a show reading some uh, emails from a fellow not that long ago, and I wanted to include more male voices on the show this year. And when you wrote to me and said you thought that was helpful, uh, I – asked you if you would be willing to come and tell your story and pay it forward, and you've been so great about it. So thanks for doing that. And let's just start, Pete, by having you tell us about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm kind of, um, Let me tell you some basics. I'm 62. Uh, I've been married for 37 years, have three grown kids that, thank God, are all successful and happy. Um I'm kind of the poster child for if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Um, I don't really have a story of uh, being a meth addict on the streets of L.A. and doing jail time and any of that kind of stuff. I I had a happy childhood, Um, no real trauma. Um, I was pretty much a nerd in school, nerd in high school. Never had a drink until after I graduated high school. And uh, it was the summer after I graduated, and three of us split a six-pack of warm beer. And uh, I promptly threw up my two beers. So it wasn't one of those experiences where I knew this was the drug for me. Um, Looked like it was going to take some work to get addicted to this drug. And... (laughs) Uh, I, uh, you know, went to college and grad school, did postgraduate training. Um, and, you know, throughout it all, I mean, I did binge drinking in college and so forth, but nothing that was, uh, I think, really out of the ordinary or, you know, even looking back, I don't think it was a problem at the time. Um, when I finished all that training, I, uh, we moved close um, to my in-laws and I started uh, working and 
every Friday night we'd go out uh, with the in-laws and my wife's father introduced me to the martini and uh, we, we would drink two martinis every night and, you know, it, it was fun and just kind of a social lubricant at the time. But over time, you know, my job was really a pressure cooker and, um, I ended up sort of transitioning from using alcohol as a social lubricant and as a fun thing to using it to self-medicate. And ironically, um, I got a partner uh, after being alone for about seven years in the job, and he turned out to be an alcoholic. And it greatly increased my stress. Um, having to deal with, you know, his issues. And, uh, you know, you would think you could look at that and learn and say, my God, I don't want to go down that path. But nope, uh, Pete decided, you know, I just needed to drink more to handle that kind of stress. And, um, you know, the years went on and my drinking just gradually escalated. And I began to pick up, you know, on the warning signs. And probably I'm talking over a 25-year period, so it was a very slow, gradual descent. Um, You know, I ended up making all the typical rules, you know, don't drink on school nights, uh, only drink beer or only drink wine or only have two drinks. And, you know, I broke them all. And uh, the only rule I really stuck with is only drink on days that end with a Y. (laughs) And I was pretty good at following that one, you know. Um, And, you know, alcohol became kind of the answer to every feeling there was. You know, if I was happy, drink. If I was sad, drink. If I was celebrating, drink. If I was mourning, drink. And, uh, um, my obsession with it just, you know, sort of grew. And, you know, I, I had to spend a lot of mental time making sure I had an in, adequate inventory of alcohol in the house, had to set up a liquor store rotation because, you, you know, you never want one liquor store to know how much you're actually drinking. So, you know, I had a rotation of three of them. Um my drinking repertoire gradually just got narrowed down to drinking vodka because, you know, I I really wasn't looking to have a drink. I was looking to have a drunk each time and uh, started like sneaking in, in a sense, like subtle sneaking, you know, we'd be drinking, my wife would leave the room and I would just top off my glass, um, thinking she wasn't going to notice. If we had social occasions, pre-gaming and post-gaming was certainly the norm because, my God, you know, you're not going to go out to eat or go to a party without drinking ahead of time. And uh, gradually, you know, my off switch just got broken. I, uh, it was kind of unpredictable. There were nights I could control it and other nights that, I just kind of, you know, went off the rails. Um, 
And, you know, things changed with alcohol, too, and its effect on me. Um, the 5 o'clock cocktail hour with my wife used to be something, you know, that I kind of romanticized, and it was a time to really connect and talk about stuff together. And it just gradually became like the five o'clock arguing hour and uh, just wasn't fun anymore. And I was sort of looking for the buzz that just didn't come. Uh, I would drink and, you know, by the time I got some sort of buzz, I'd almost be in a stupor and uh, uh, be a very good conversationalist. I started having blackouts and brownouts um, at night. And, you know, we'd watch a TV show. Like we watched, I think, seven seasons of Breaking Bad. And I I remember about five minutes of Breaking Bad. Um, (laughs) I'd, we'd go out to eat to a nice restaurant. And the next morning, I really couldn't tell you what I had to eat, you know, and it took a lot of energy to try to piece everything together in your mind. So, you you know, I didn't look like an idiot the next day. Um, And it just took so much mental effort. And, you know, there were the 3 a.m. wake-ups where you just wake up in bed feeling so anxious and you can't get back to sleep and, uh, worrying about everything in the world um, and not really be able, you know, being able to to rest. And, you know, I remember wake, getting to the point where I'd wake up in the morning and my first thought was, when can I go back to bed again? And when I started having that thought, I thought, man, something's wrong because that, that's sick, you know. You only have one shot at this life, and I think if you're thinking, I just want to get back in bed and be unconscious again, buddy, you ain't doing something right. And I lost all my outside interests and hobbies. Um, I just had this building sense of dread because I knew where I was at, just uh, couldn't, you know, go on forever. And then I think the thing that really tipped me over in looking for a solution is turning 60. Um, You know, every 10 years you get that, hey, I'm getting older thing. And 30, 40, 50 wasn't too bad. But 60, you know, that was the first time I had the realization that, you know, there's this slight possibility I might not live forever. And... You know, when you start to confront your own mortality, you realize um, time to do something so I can enjoy the rest of my life and not basically feel like crap um, all of the time. So I tried off and on for about six months. And... uh when kind of got involved in the online world and I joined club soda, which was a, it's, it's a neat thing out of the UK. Um, and they have a month off booze and the month off booze became my two weeks off booze. And then I started drinking again because, you know, it was a weekend. And I mean, how, how can you get through a weekend without drinking? Um, 
Then I joined another online thing, which had a month off booze. And that was another couple of weeks off booze. And so then the holidays were coming, and naturally there's no way to get through the holidays without drinking, so Pete's drinking again. Things sort of, you know, weren't getting a heck of a lot better, but I, I, I think the thing that really saved me is my daughter moved back home for a couple months. Um, she's a captain in the Army Reserve, and she was coming back near us for some training for a couple of months, so she was staying with us, and she's kind of a hard ass. And she said, um, hey, let's do this Whole30 diet. And I thought, perfect, you know. I don't want to admit to anybody I have a problem. And with this Whole30 diet, you can't drink, you can't eat sugar. Um, There's a whole bunch of restrictions. Um, So I thought, well, this is going to rip this Band-Aid off. And I had my daughter and my wife with me doing that too. So in a sense, we could all suffer together and, uh, suffer. Uh, I did, um, at least for the first 10 days, you know, those first 10 days were not, uh, very pleasant. And I mean, talk about white knuckling it. I, I can remember sitting in my chair and squeezing those armrests and, truly having white knuckles. Um, But I, you know, I decided if I'm going to do it, I'm going to throw everything I have at it. So I I read a bazillion blogs, read a bunch of books, listened to podcasts all day long. I joined um, an online group, um, you know, that's got a Yahoo version, which I didn't like. And then I got on Facebook. Um, That's been super helpful. Got a therapist, started exercising, started meditating. um, And the days just sort of added up. You know, once I got past 10 days, it got easier um, until about day 60. And then it was terrible again. I... You know, I kind of see myself as a pretty happy guy. And believe me, you know, my life is a life that uh, you can be pretty happy uh, with. But I got so depressed um, at that point. I don't think I've ever been that depressed in my life. And from day like 60 to 80, uh, I just had a tough time and I just – hung on and said, you know, these people in this group says it gets better, so I'm just not going to quit now. And uh, when on like day 81, I woke up and it was gone. And, you know, I subsequently learned about this uh, pause phenomenon. I think it's called post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of it is it's just your neurotransmitters sort of recalibrating in your brain and I, I I think that's what I had and I think it was very much uh, for real so um, it's been um, I wouldn't say every moment was easy since then 
but it's certainly gotten easier. And now at two years, um, it's a heck of a lot easier for me. You know, I've gotten to the point where I really don't think about alcohol very much at all. That's a great place to be. Uh, I'm curious about your wife. Has she, did she continue to stay off alcohol or is she a normie or where's she at? She's, uh, no, she's on alcohol. In fact, she didn't make it through the 30 days of that diet. She started drinking again after two weeks and, uh, She's probably pretty close to a normie. Um, You know, she can have two drinks and call it quits for the evening or have a glass of wine and call it quits. And, you know, for me, I truly don't understand just drinking one glass of wine. Like, why would you (laughs) ever do that? (laughs) Yeah. But Um, she's continued to drink, and there's alcohol in my house. And I, I... I'm not upset with that. You know, I, I stare it down and, you know, sort of look at the bottles and just go F you. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm in the same boat. We, we still have alcohol in our home and um, my husband is very much a normie. In fact, probably more of a normie since I quit drinking because I'm not forever pouring him drinks. I mean, I think I used to, I wouldn't say force alcohol on him, but I mean, there was always alcohol was always being poured in our off hours because that's was my MO. And um, yeah. I think if anything, I think he might look back, you know, at the big picture and realize that he drinks a lot less since I've stopped drinking. I think that might, you know, kind of say something about, the dynamic there, but not everybody can do that. Not everybody is able to stay sober with alcohol in the house. So it's good that you've sort of found what works for you. And one thing I'm wondering about though, is you talked about that, you know, nobody really seemed to know you were holding it together, but now that you're not drinking, does your family see a difference in you or have they expressed kind of thinking that it was a good change or a necessary change? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, (laughs) I was kidding myself. (laughs) You Uh, know, if you think people don't know, uh, you're wrong. And um, uh, I, you know, I was really concerned at first that my family and and friends would um, see me as like a, a broken guy, you know, hey, you know, he's the loser that can't drink normally. And what's really funny to me and still sort of surprising is they don't see me that way at all. They see me as sort of Superman, um, Mm -hmm. the guy who could quit drinking because, my God, who can totally give up alcohol? That's nearly impossible. And, uh, you know, getting back to what you were saying, uh, about your spouse drinking less, you know, the, the scary thing is like, I look around and like almost everybody I know that I deal with a lot, my, my wife, my kids, my friends, um, all seem to drink less than what they used to. And it's almost like, am I a role model? Because <laughs> that thought scares me. <laughs> well, I think, it, I think though, there is something about it. I, I think about, Sometimes people are uncomfortable around 
people that don't drink because it holds a mirror up for them, you know? And so someone was just telling me about, you know, friends that try to force them to drink because they can't be comfortable with that person not drinking around them. And it really says more about, you know, them than you. But by the same token, I think for people that do have a healthy relationship with alcohol and with themselves, they can take that, your presence as a positive cue and not a negative one and feel like, yeah, I, I want what he has. I want to be more like that. That's a good thing. And I love that you can see that because, well, when did that shift happen? When did you start to realize that this was a positive and not a negative? Oh, that took quite a while. I mean, that was well over a, a year into it because one of the things I really struggled with um, in, you know, once I got past, say, the first 90 days or so, was this feeling that I was less than or other than everybody. You know, everybody else could have a drink and enjoy it, and here I am with my club soda, you know. Boy, am I a loser. And it seems like after a year, I kind of transitioned from I'm less than to, hey, I'm better than. Uh, I don't need a drug to have a great time. And, you know, at the end of a party, I'm still smart. (laughs) You know, I'm not a drunk (laughs) idiot now, you know. Um, I I hope I don't sound like an ego monster when I say that, but um, it's, it, it, that was kind of an important thing for me because it it was tough uh, having, you know, that feeling that you're, you're less than, I mean, I remember going to a wedding and uh, pretty early on, and uh, it was a pretty fancy, dancy, you know, wedding in a ritzy place. And uh, at our table was a guy who was like uh, Superman, you know. He owns a mansion and owns a business. And he was flying to give three speeches in New York City the next day. And I thought, my God, am I a loser? <laughs> He's there sipping his wine and I'm just having my soda here and I realize now like that that was a ridiculous attitude on my part um yeah so you know but it took me a long time my god you know I uh I I wish it all could have happened in 30 days but I mean it took months and months and months and a year and so forth to sort of get there although when you you know when you told your story you said that your descent really took 25 years and and happened slowly. So I always think we're in such a rush to change everything, but it takes us decades to get to this point sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with being slow and deliberate in our recovery and in our changing, but it can really be quite amazing once it starts to unfold, right? But I know what you mean. We just want like this magic fix, but... It takes a while. It yeah. really takes a while, especially well, with the things like the thinking. Um, when you were talking about the, you know, comparing yourself to others, um, one of the things that was really an eye opener for me in recovery is the idea of not comparing ourselves to others, because that was my whole gauge in the world. Like, how do you know how you're doing if you're not comparing yourself to others? But to um, 
see ourselves as, well, I'm the best gene I can be. You're the best version of yourself that you can be. And, like, that becomes the gauge. And it's so freeing, really, when you stop doing that, right? It's just so... Oh, oh, oh my God, it's tremendous. You know, yeah. I, I sort of view it like, hey, I fly my freak flag, you know. I'm just a weirdo. You don't have to be like me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I, I, I do my thing, and I, I'm good with it. You know, I'm happy with me right now. And, uh, you know, it, it's been kind of nice because I, I, I think when I was drinking, I was sort of a chameleon, you know, and I could be a different person depending on the group. You know, I could hang out with redneck gun owners and talk guns and all that, or I could, you know, go to a, in the city and go to dinner with Democrats and talk about left-wing politics. And I, I, I just didn't, you know, I, I felt there wasn't the true me because, you know, part of that's people pleasing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, now I don't really care. You know, what you're seeing is the real Pete. And uh, if you like me, great. And if you don't like me, eh, that's OK, too. You know, the way I look at it, if I was blueberry pie, 15 percent of people aren't going to like blueberry pie. That's OK. <laughs> This is true. That's a funny, funny analogy, but it's true, really. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like it's really spilled over into other aspects of your life. Um, so are there other areas of your life where you're sort of more open about yourself or more accepting of yourself? Or how has that changed, how you conduct yourself? I've become a very much less reactive person. You know, um, I was thinking the other day that probably, you know, when I was drinking, I I was about mm, 55% a-hole most of the time. And, you know, I think I've gotten that percentage down to about 5%. Because um, <laughs> I, I... That's pretty good, Pete. <laughs> Now, you know, there are people that might argue about that percentage, but um, I, it, it's allowed me to listen a lot more than I talk. You know, there's, there's a saying that God gave you two ears and only one mouth for a reason. And yeah. um, I, I, I think just being able to listen to people and be interested in people and not be so self-obsessed makes you into a different person. You know, it's also eliminated my social anxiety because, you know, I medicated myself before parties and dinners and so forth to, you know, get over that. And, And what I've discovered is, you know, if you're interested in people and you listen to people, you really never want for conversation because the vast majority of the world just wants to talk about themselves. And if you're good at saying, uh-huh, oh, really? <laughs> um, you can talk for hours. 
This is true. This is what I do every week on this show because people are so interesting, right? I mean, it's not as if you're just being a people pleaser by listening to them. They're really, they really are just amazing. Yeah. Every person has a story. Yeah. And, you know, even if you don't like them, you can just think of yourself as like an alien anthropologist studying a weird creature (laughs) and have fun with it, you know? Well, that's, that is really interesting because I have discovered I was self-medicating social anxiety. I really wouldn't have ever admitted that at the time, but I had to really deal with that after I quit drinking. And, and one of my solutions was really just to start saying no to some things that I really didn't want to go to, and that helped too. Um, oh, my God, I, isn't that the truth? Yeah. So, so you relate me, to that. I, oh, I, I mean, I'm a slow learner. You know, it only took me uh, 60 years to learn the word no. Um, <laughs> but I just say no now. And right. it's it, it proves to be no big deal. And, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why it was so hard anymore um, to say no. Because, you, you know, you got to set a boundary. You have to protect yourself a little bit. We, you know, uh, and I realized, you know, the the way I handled some things when I couldn't say no is, yeah, I'll go. And the way I'm going to handle it is I'm just going to drink and I'll get blasted. And uh, that's not a healthy way uh, of dealing with that. You know, you, you, you have to be able to say no in this world because people are going to just put so many demands on you. And um, I don't know. People pleasing just isn't a, a recipe for happiness for the most part. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, I think it it's the cause of the discomfort that we are seeking to numb with alcohol or food or whatever behavior gets us, you know. Um, a lot of it does come back to the people pleasing. So I'm curious about, you talked about um, going to therapy what did you learn about yourself in therapy? Uh, you, you know, I got to be honest with you. I don't think I learned a heck of a lot of stuff about myself. Um, I used it more to kind of ask about sobriety and, you know, it. I mean, simple stuff, you know, like, hey, doc, do people actually sleep all night or do you wake up every hour or so? (laughs) And, you know, I I mean, my God, you know, it sounds idiotic, but that was the kind of stuff I I actually wondered about, you know? And I, I think I really wasn't dealing with, like, a lot of issues, you know, I pretty much happily married. Um, I uh, got a great career. Um, You know, everything about my life was was good outwardly. You know, behind the curtains was kind of a shit, or it it was kind of a a mess. Um, But I don't know. I found it helpful to talk. You know, the, the, the people connection... Um, 
just having a human to talk to was and be totally honest with is what really helped me. Um, I live in a pretty small area and, you know, in a small town, you don't have to do too much to become almost a semi-celebrity. And I, I didn't really have anybody that I could be totally honest with um, early on. And uh, I think it helped in that regard to just kind of talk about things and, and just be completely 100% honest to someone who, you know, doesn't have a vested interest or an angle, you know, at me. Does that make yeah. sense? It makes so much sense to me. That was pretty much exactly my experience, too. The, the city I live in, I'm in Canada, and um, I live in a city that's about 100,000 people. So um, not a huge place. And as you say, like as a business owner, I was just, well, you capitalize on your visibility as part of promoting your business, right? And um, yeah. But I started to feel like I was almost um, like a prisoner of my own making in a way because I felt like I always had to be on I felt so much shame about um, knowing that I had developed a problem with alcohol because I just felt like I had tied so much of my value as a business person and as a woman to the public perception of me, and it just uh, it, it just it became like a suit of armor that was really uncomfortable to wear, you know. And uh, yeah. I'll- couldn't couldn't agree uh, more because, you know, I, I I do a job, you know, in my job I'm I'm a leader, and uh, you know I I just can't show weakness at all, and uh, um, it, it, it's tough to to always put up that front when you need some help, you, you know yourself. And, well, how do you uh, deal with that now? Like, how do you, how is that different now? Uh, I'm pretty. I, I mean, I tell everybody I quit drinking, um, and because you know it just wasn't doing good things for me, and mm-hmm. it was doing bad things to me, and uh, um, I I think that sort of being out like that. Um, has has been a, a a really good thing, and I think, you know, I think people respect me more um, than if I just kept it like my dark little secret. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I I I even had an experience. A young guy at work, thirty five year old guy, he came up to me one day. He goes, you know what? I've quit drinking because uh, you inspired me in wow. what you've done. And it was like, holy cow, that makes me feel good. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is really wonderful. So do you feel like the shame and stigma that you felt when you first were embarking on this, that they're completely lifted? Or do you still sort of choose who you tell about your recovery or how you frame it? I choose. Um and, you know, you notice I said, hey, 
alcohol was doing bad things to me and I quit drinking. Um, I don't say, hey, I'm an alcoholic and I had to quit. And, you know, I don't even identify with the term alcoholic. Um, I, I, I certainly had alcohol use disorder, but I think most people are really happy with the explanation that alcohol wasn't doing good things for me. And, and I quit it um, because of that. And they can draw any inference they, they want from it, you know. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. just r- really lucky that, you know, I didn't yet have a DUI, e- even though I drove drunk plenty of times. Um, didn't lose my job. Didn't get a divorce. Um, my kids still love me. I mean, I got out in the nick of time as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah. But, um, it, you know, you know and I know, uh, there, there's stigma uh, uh, attached to this. And um, uh, it, it, having, you know, developed the problem myself, it certainly allows me to empathize with people a heck of a lot more than I ever used to because, you know, I, I grew up in a house where my mom was the most virulent anti-drinker um, there was. Um, you know, I think my, my mom had an alcoholic stepdad, and I'm sure he abused her. Um, and so, you know, uh, she was, had never had anything nice to say about anybody that would uh, drink, you know. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. So that, you know, that was kind of the background I was coming from. So it's right, really opened yeah. my eyes, you know. And at the start of the show, you know, you said that you weren't a, you know, meth user on the streets of L.A. or something like that. But but here's the amazing part is I think what the other thing you're saying is that, but we all could be. <laughs> like I think we, we realize oh. that in ourselves. Like we just, it's just that. We stopped before it came to who knows what low bottom. And um, that's amazing in itself, too, when you come to that realization of that we, we are all so the same. It just it can take us to different places, but underneath, underneath whatever degree of addiction we are at when we quit, we are all on the same trajectory, really. So, uh, w- Without a doubt. I mean... You know, number one, it it has shocked me how alike we all are. You know, um, you, you had that episode where you led, read letters from Charles, and that was what I wrote to you about. And um, I thought, my God, that could be me. And you interviewed Shelley um, from our group, and I listened to some things that she said, and it's like, that could be me. Yeah, and I, I yeah. almost thought you could put my interview together by just editing out snippets from everyone you've done before. <laughs> uh, I think that may be true for a lot of us, but you know the thing is, it's funny that we never get tired of of hearing it because we all hear ourselves in it, and the details might be different, but the core truth behind it is the same. We were hurting, we tried something that we thought would help, it ended up making it worse, and we got addicted to it. And so we had to leave that behind and then also find a new way to deal with the original 
problem anyway. And then things got better. I mean, really, that is the hero's journey of every person in recovery. Um, the, the details change if there's relapse involved or, you know, what method they use to get sober. But at the core of every story, it kind of all comes back to that because that's the human essence of it all. And that's amazing, too, because you realize, I think a lot of us, you know, that to choose to get sober outside of a established program, we might start um, out thinking, well, that program's not for me because I'm not like those people. And then in time we realize, oh, actually, I probably would have done okay in that program because I really, you know, we are all so similar. But Oh, my God. It, it, you know, is, isn't, that, isn't that the truth? Because... Last year, I had the experience. I I had a chance to spend some time out on the West Coast, and I met up with some members of our online group. And, Uh you know, it was uh, what I truly got out of it was meeting with these folks and, and saying, my God, you know, these women are like smart and intelligent and good looking and with it. And they got this problem too. And, you know, it makes you feel better about yourself because you realize you're in good company. Yeah. And, you know, your conception of, uh, say, you know, one of the standard meetings, a bunch of old guys in a smelly basement smoking cigarettes and drinking bad coffee. I mean, no, <laughs> no, there is, uh, you know, um, a lot of people have gone down this rabbit hole that are really tremendous people that are yeah. impressive people. Although, to be fair, there are a lot of recovery meetings that are exactly as you described. <laughs> but they're not the only ones. And they they can sometimes yeah. be pretty great meetings, I'm told. But um, but there really is no end to the the comfort zone that you can find among people in recovery. But you do sometimes have to go looking for it a little bit. And, and it takes courage to say, well, I'm going to go meet these people for coffee that I've only ever talk to online was your family a little bit weirded out that you were doing that or did were they supportive of it or did you feel funny that you were meeting people for the first time from the online group oh yeah i mean you know when you only know people from the internet you know i'm of an age where i'm not even sure you actually exist (laughs) and uh I, i i thought it was you know, really weird um, to just know people from Facebook and then meet them for the first time, but it turned out to be so great. And what was good is my wife was really cool with it. She thought it was great that I was going to meet with uh, my friends from my online community. And uh, it, it turned out to just be a great day for me. Oh, that's awesome. I've I've yeah. on many occasions met with people sometimes from our online group if I'm traveling or sometimes people will just write to me randomly and I'll be like, "Hey, where are you? You know what? I'm going to be traveling there next year. Let's have coffee." And it, it always turns out fine. You know, touch wood. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It really is always 
amazing. And of course, you have to be, you know, safe about it. And we generally just sort of meet for coffee in a public place just for everybody's comfort and safety. But it is just so amazing. And then um, when you do then, when you go back into that online group, it adds a whole other dimension, don't you find, to your interaction there because you now you know these people so differently. And yeah, I mean, you, you, know you, you view them as, as, as real friends. And I'm just so thankful for my wife to not get weirded out because I kind of thought if I said, you know, dear, I'm going to meet up with some nice women I met on the Internet. <laughs> um, out here in this strange city. <laughs> you know, yeah, be careful that, about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that it wasn't quite going to fly. <laughs> no, the, I feel like the Internet has just exploded recovery in such an amazing way because um, there's now there's just so many different pathways to recovery and so many opportunities to connect and and learn from each other that it just, I think it is such a game changer. And, I mean, even shows like this one, um, you know, you used to, if you wanted to hear stories of people in recovery, you had to buy a, a cassette tape, you know, from, from yeah. somebody that had made one. Like, you had to somehow go and connect. And the fact that people can get information, I believe, when they're in that sort of exploratory stage, I think it's part of the reason why people are finding their way out of addiction earlier in the trajectory because they're given the information earlier. And um, uh, it doesn't help everybody, but it's enough for a lot of people to help them make the change um, earlier on. And um, and then when you learn the power of connecting with people, um, it also gives you the courage to go and, and make those real-life connections that, you know, without that, a lot of people keep drinking they because they don't know what else to do. Yeah, no, there's no way I would have been sober right now without the Internet. You know, I uh, anymore in the online group, I'm more of a lurker than a poster. But I I, I learn something every day. You know, if only that early sobriety still sucks and it's tough to go through and I don't want to go there again. Mm -hmm. That is a good reminder. I find that helpful, too. And, you know, the other thing I find is that just by encouraging other people in the group, I'm giving service, and that helps me stay sober, too. Um, the, the idea of, of helping others keeps us sober, I mean, it's it's just such a great continuum that we're all part of. And I, I would have never thought that. I really I sort of thought I was going to fix me, deal with my own business, just quietly fix my problem and then be done with it. And instead it's all about this give and take and learning and growing and there's no end to it. It just, it goes on and on. It's wonderful. Oh my God. I have learned so much. It's been such a growth experience for me to, you know, read the wisdom that people um, have shared uh, online about this. You know, I thought I was a pretty, uh, smart, mature person, but my God, have I learned a lot just by listening and reading um, to these folks. Is there any phrases that stand out in your mind or anything that you sort of have as a favorite phrase that helps keep you going? Um, I'm a real font of inspirational uh, sayings Mm -hmm. and uh, quotes. Um, 
I, uh, one I really like is I didn't come this far to only come this far. Oh, and yeah. th- that sort of helps keep me going. Um, cause I feel like I'm only, you know, I'm not even halfway through this, uh, journey. Um, and, uh, I'll tell you another one I like, and I have this hanging in my little garage gym. It helps when you're doing squats, which are painful and suck, but, <laughs> um, and it applies to drinking too. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, a uh, quote, um, that's credited to Jerry Rice, who was a football player. And uh, he said, today I do what others won't, so tomorrow I can do what others can't. And that really resonates with me. You talked about waking up in the morning during your drinking days and just dreading every day and not wanting to get out of bed. What are mornings like now for you? Uh, Good. (laughs) <laughs> I love mornings now. I am Mr. Morning Person. They <laughs> have changed uh, so much. You know, mornings uh, were basically terrible because, uh, you know, after after a party, I would force myself to get up early and clean up the house and do all this extra stuff to try to um, – you know, make my wife less pissed at me for my behavior the night before. <laughs> and now I just get up and look forward to the day. You know, I, I I was looking at some notes I jotted down when I first quit drinking. And uh, one of the things I wrote down is I, I, I that I would drink because I was almost afraid of tomorrow and what it would bring. Um and now, you know, that sense of fear is gone. Um, I wake up in the morning and I just can't wait to get going. And I, I know in my heart of hearts that I'm not going to face a single thing that day that I can't handle. Um, so, uh, my God, I, I just am pretty much loving life most, most days. That was wonderful. Well, that's it's- such an inspirational point to to round out our discussion on. We are just closing off the hour here. And um, maybe before we go, I wonder if you have any words of encouragement or what would you say to someone who called you up and said, okay, how do I do it? I'm, I want to quit. What do I do? What would you say to that person? Um, I'd, I'd say I think there's there's two things. Um, that you got to do to quit drinking. Um, number one, you got to break through denial. You know, I, I think that's summed up by virgins don't take pregnancy tests. Um, <laughs> I think that if, if you think you might have a problem, you do. If you're wondering if you can moderate, you can't. If you've ever Googled, am I an alcoholic? Uh, Google ought to just give you three words. Yes, you are. And, you know, um, you got to get through that. And then you got to realize that what you have to do is learn to tolerate discomfort. Because, you know, part of our drinking is we're taking this drug 
to get rid of discomfort of whatever we're feeling. And I think realizing that you're going to feel discomfort and almost detaching yourself from it, you know, put it in a little bubble or balloon and look at it almost floating in front of you that, and realize, hey, I'm feeling discomfort. It's a fleeting emotion I'm having. It's not forever. This is what discomfort feels like. Um, and I, I think that allows you to, you know, get through that discomfort of sobriety, but also it's prepared me to deal with life. You know, people die, bad things happen. There are days when you're going to feel really sad, um, and you learn to just ride with the emotion and not let it consume you. It's helped with the cravings, too, when you realize they're just fleeting thoughts coming through your mind, um, and they, they, they come and go. And I, I, I think for me, those were kind of the two key things. Well, that's wonderful advice. I wished, I wished I'd uh, had that piece of information back when I was quitting because I thought cravings were forever and caused me panic. And um, that's very encouraging. You're a smart guy. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and your insights and your humor with, with me and all the listeners today. I really appreciate it, Pete. Hey, uh, my pleasure to be here. It's been almost surreal talking to you. I was listening to the bubble hour walking around today. So it's been great talking to you, Jean. Oh, you too. I'm so glad you're here. And thank you for taking the time to do this. Thanks for, for being a, a listener and then for, for paying it, coming full, full circle and, and, um, and sharing your story too. And listeners, if, if something Pete said to you uh, really resonated and you want to say thank you or you want to get a message to Pete, um, you can email me. The email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will make sure that Pete gets it. And um, I guess that's it for us this week. Um, you can find uh, this episode and all our other episodes, several of which were mentioned today, on the Blog Talk Radio website. Just go to blogtalkradio.com slash bubble hour and you will find all 200 plus uh, archived episodes of this show. And uh, if you want to read anything about me, well, go over to unpickledblog.com and, uh, and have a look through my many archives of stories there. And as well, both Unpickled and The Bubble Hour are on Facebook. So that's it for us from this time for this week. Until next time, everyone, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind Oh, you think you're strong you
Just want to be 